Ambassador Baumgarten, Professor Gestrich, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the kind invitation to be here this evening. This is only the third time that I have been back to London since I came down from Oxford in 1970. It's been 41 years since I was a student here, and I've had only two previous occasions to come back. So short as the visit is, it is nonetheless very welcome as an opportunity. Uh, and thank you all for coming here this evening. After Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933, most German diplomats behaved just as they had been trained to do, as part of the machinery of their state. A few, the ambassador in Washington and the vice consul in New York notably, quickly realized that the Third Reich was not the state to which they had sworn allegiance and resigned. But almost no one else in the German diplomatic corps followed suit. Instead, both individually and collectively, the German Foreign Office adjusted rapidly to the new national priorities. Most strikingly, by reviving already in March 1933, the recently dissolved Deutschland Referat, or German desk, to handle issues involving the interrelationship of domestic and foreign <coughs> policy, and by appointing Emil Schomburg, a career diplomat since 1926, to lead the desk's external defense of the nation's new policies of discrimination and persecution. The process by which the Foreign Office came to act as a constituent part of an increasingly barbaric and criminal regime occurred so spontaneously and automatically in the early days of the Nazi regime that one may speak justifiably of a Selbstgleichaltung, a self-coordination with the so-called national awakening. As with other German elites, such as big business leaders, cooperation with the new order in Germany was fostered in the pre-war years by a partial identity of goals. Virtually all of Germany's diplomats shared with Hitler and the Nazis a desire to restore the nation's power, throw off the restrictions of the Treaty of Versailles, and reacquire the lands lost in 1918 drawn overwhelmingly from the nation's upper classes, indeed from the aristocracy. The upper echelon of the Foreign Office also shared the Nazis' anti-Semitism, which many leading diplomats, including Ernst von Weizsäcker, justified from the beginning of Nazi rule as an understandable reaction to an imagined Überschwemmung, or inundation of German society and culture, by Jews during the 1920s. After war broke out in 1939, Germany's enemies multiplied and the foreign office's representations and traditional tasks abroad declined correspondingly. A new incentive to cooperation with the Nazi state thus arose, namely the need to preserve the institution and the careers and influence of its members by demonstrating indispensability to the regime in other capacities and ways. As a result, a continuous blurring of the lines between party organizations and the Foreign Office took place throughout the Nazi era. The trend gathered force less because of the insertion of numerous national socialists into leading bureaucratic positions than because of the massive flow of senior civil servants into the NSDAP and SS and the, and the Nazification of the training and the promotion standards for the next generation of leaders. Until 1943, Hitler blocked Ribbentrop's attempts to purge the diplomatic personnel 
that the Nazi regime had inherited from the Weimar, indeed largely from the Wilhelmine era. But in 1937-38, and again in 1940, these diplomats and their would-be successors joined the Nazi party in waves. And by then, the preparatory courses for future diplomats had come to include tours of the concentration camp at Dachau and a reception hosted by the Führer at Berchtesgaden. Both before and after 1939, dissent from government policy within the Foreign Office arose in connection with Germany's diplomatic tactics, but seldom other matters. Thus, Foreign Office personnel sometimes delayed the denaturalization of prominent Germans who had gone into exile, lest the move harm the Reich's image. Similarly, State Secretary Weizsäcker and several associates tried in 1938-39 to impede the regime's march toward war for fear that Germany could not win. And in 1941-1943, many diplomats pointed out the politically counterproductive nature of German harshness toward the populace in the occupied East, maltreatment of the Eastern workers brought to Germany, and roundups of laborers in Western Europe. Regarding the persecution of the Jews, however, Weizsäcker and nearly all of his colleagues were implacable or indifferent, which amounted to the same thing. In 1938-39, Weizsäcker rejected any amelioration of anti-Semitic policy because that would make Germany appear weak and susceptible to outside pressure. And he blocked several proposals to increase the flow of Jewish emigration from Germany. He took this hard line even though he already had told the Swiss envoy to Paris that Jews had to leave Germany, quote, otherwise they are going sooner or later toward their complete annihilation. Sonst gingen sie kurz oder lang ihren vollständigen Vernichtung entgegen. Weizsäcker thus not only used the word Vernichtung three months before the first time Adolf Hitler uttered it in public, but he helped to assure that it would happen. Within the Foreign Office, knowledge of when and how Weizsäcker's prediction was being fulfilled and extended to the Jews of Europe became widespread in later years as the office's liaison men with the high commands of each army fighting on the Eastern Front filed periodic reports, and as those of the Einsatzgruppen, including the daily death toll of people who had been shot, as the reports of the Einsatzgruppen circulated among the state secretaries and the department heads in Berlin, the Abteilungsleiter. When the deportation trains started to roll out of Germany, the Foreign Office merely asked Adolf Eichmann to consult it in advance in order to provide time to prepare misleading responses to foreign press or radio accounts and soothing answers to inquiries from foreign diplomats or journalists in Berlin. When the train started to roll from the occupied countries, diplomats occasionally warned about adverse effects on local public opinion, but the tepid and feckless nature of most of these interventions is exemplified by Weizsäcker's decision merely to alter the wording of a memo on transports from France to say that the Foreign Office had no objections rather than no reservations about the act. By April 1944, 
when many of the personnel of the news and press department, the cultural policy department, and the radio policy department convened at Komhubel with the representatives of the German missions to 12 European countries and heard detailed numerical summaries of the executive measures for the physical removal of East European Jewry. Das heißt, Exekutiv Maßnahmen zur physischen Beseitigung des Ostjudentums. The Foreign Office was not only fully informed about the Holocaust, but also had assumed central responsibility for anti-Jewish propaganda abroad. That is, in effect, for spreading justifications of mass murder. Such real resistance to the Nazi regime, as is usually associated with the Foreign Office, resistance defined as action to bring down the Nazi state or sabotage its policies, actually came primarily from no longer active diplomats, including Albrecht von Bernstorff, Eduard Bruckelmeier, Ulrich von Hassel, Otto Kiep, Richard Künzer, Herbert Mumm von Schwarzenstein, und Friedrich Werner von der Schulenberg, and from individuals who were not really diplomats at all, having been recruited to carry out special assignments in the central offices, as were Hans Litter and Adam von Trott zu Solz, or abroad, as was Georg Duckwitz in the German mission in Copenhagen. Heroic and rare exceptions among the professional diplomats were Hans Bernd von Heften, the second man in the cultural policy section who participated in Helmut James von Moltke's Kreisau Circle, who knew in advance of the plan to assassinate Hitler on July 20th, 1944, and who paid for that with his life later that year. A second example is Rudolf von Schelehier, I'll do it again, of the press section, who passed information on the Holocaust to Karl Burkhardt in Switzerland and who was caught up in the capturing of the so-called Red Orchestra espionage organization and executed in December 1942. And of course, there was Gerhard Feiner of the German mission to Hungary, who worked with the Swiss vice consul in Budapest in the fall of 1944 to place 50,000 Jews in the city under Swiss diplomatic protection. However, among the 6,500 employees of the Foreign Office in 1943, one can count the total number of genuine resistors on one's hands. That Adam von Trott claimed otherwise to his Gestapo interrogators, and that Josef Goebbels did so to the German people via the diaries he intended to publish, hardly prove the contrary. Trott's assertion was first an evasion, an attempt to avoid naming his fellow conspirators by claiming that everyone around him was in on the plot, and it was second a justification, an assertion that he was not a lone traitor, but the expression of general opinion. The regime's pronouncements had a different political valence, but also were self-serving self exaggerations. They were part of Goebbels' desperate and fierce efforts in Nazism's waning days to generate a new stab-in-the-back legend and to shift the blame for what was befalling Germany. Given what I have said, the limited extent of even oppositional sentiment, let alone action, in the Foreign Office that was reported in the only credible surviving contemporaneous document about political attitudes there prior to 1945 should come as no surprise. Its author, Fritz Kolbe, did not belong to either the higher diplomatic service in the Foreign Office or the Nazi Party. But from the end of 1940 on, 
He managed the office of Ambassador Karl Ritter, the foreign office's liaison with the German army, and an advisor to Ribbentrop on issues of war economy. In this capacity, Kolbe came in contact with a great many high-ranking members of the diplomatic corps and saw a host of secret documents. Beginning in August 1943, he began using his authorized trips to Bern in Switzerland to pass some of these documents to Alan Dulles, the station chief of the OSS, the American Intelligence Organization. In April 1945, however, Kolbe delivered a remarkable document of his own creation, a list of 241 employees of the Foreign Office still resident in Berlin at the end of March 1945, along with their titles, office locations, and Kolbe's political evaluation of each. Of the 104 non-clerical personnel on the list, Kolbe classified as, quote, anti-Nazi and suitable for further employment, unquote, exactly nine people. In other words, fewer than one in ten of the people on the list. And as, quote, provisionally employable after a warning, unquote, another 28. As unsuitable and deserving of immediate dismissal and in most cases arrest, he listed the remaining 67 individuals, almost two-thirds of those he had surveyed. To be sure, many of the diplomats who later claimed varying degrees of knowledge of wartime conspiracies against Hitler such as Wilhelm Melchers and Herbert Blankenhorn, both of whom I will talk about further, were no longer in Berlin in March 1945 and thus not evaluated by Kolbe. But even if one credits their autobiographical accounts, Kolbe's ratios are telling, and we have no reason to think that they did not apply to the entire German Foreign Service, including personnel posted abroad, or in offices that had been evacuated from the capital. The irony here, of course, is that Kolbe's evaluations both discredit the myth of the Foreign Office as a bastion of opposition to the Third Reich and lend credence to those Germans who told the Allies in the early 1950s that finding qualified and experienced diplomats who did not have at least an outwardly pro-Nazi past was almost impossible. Indeed, the task grew more difficult in the first years after the war, since of the 37 diplomats Kolbe labeled provisionally employable or anti-Nazi, seven died in the four years following 1945, six of them in Soviet captivity. Nonetheless, the former and future German diplomats who later emphasized this difficulty of finding people without a Nazi past were the same people who built the post-war legend of the Foreign Office as an oppositional bastion. Chief among them was Wilhelm Melchers, and that fact, too, has an ironic side. For Melchers Melchers appears to have engaged in retrospective projection of his own wily earlier behavior and motives onto many of his colleagues. Having been careful to keep his own hands fairly clean, even as consul in Haifa in 1938-39, and thereafter in Berlin as head of the Orient Desk, which encompassed the Near East and entailed close relations with the Mufti of Jerusalem, Melchers, whose party membership dates from the day Germany invaded Poland, 
even had an act that saved lives to his credit, albeit one that resulted from purely pragmatic considerations. In hopes of keeping Turkey neutral in the war, he had obstructed the SS's desire to round up Turkish Jews residing in Europe until Turkey decided to permit their repatriation. And he thus ended up saving their lives. The story of how the image of the Foreign Office and Nazism came to diver diverge profoundly from the reality I have described did not begin with Melcher's, although he was the author of decisive contributions to the process. Herbert Blankenhorn, who spoke good, Eng <clears throat> good English thanks to his service at the German Embassy in Washington in 1936-39, laid the foundation for a romanticized post-war image in a memo written for his American captors in early June 1945 entitled The Foreign Office Under the Nazi Regime. After conceding that, quote, we were all guilty for submitting to such a regime, unquote. The memo depicted Ernst von Weizsäcker as the leader of a long and losing rearguard action on behalf of the professional diplomats in the Foreign Office against the relentless ascent of amateurish and ignorant National Socialist appointees. The document also listed 30 quote-unquote professional officials in the central sections of the office, including Blankenhorn, who had entered the diplomatic service before 1933, become merely nominal Nazis whom, whom the regime distrusted, and been, quote, outspoken opponents of the regime, unquote. Blankenhorn thus expanded the alleged number of anti-Nazis in the ministry well beyond Kolba's nine, and expanded their presence well beyond the cultural policy section where Hefton and Trott had worked. Needless to say, Blankenhorn did not specify to whom and how these people had been, quote, outspoken. And in fact, the memoirs of Marie uh, Vatsilchikov, who was a translator in the uh, Foreign Office at the time, indicated that Blankenhorn was anything but outspoken with regard to the resistance. Three months later, Emil von Rintelen, the former director of the political section, provided an American general with political evaluations of 72 senior personnel in the central sections, rating 28 of them as reserved or critical toward Nazism. And in October 1945, in faraway Shanghai, Erich Kort, who had been attached to the German embassies in Japan and then China since February of 1941, gave American intelligence a list of 40 diplomats posted both at home and abroad, quote, whose anti-national socialist attitude was unquestionable, unquote. Intended to persuade the American occupiers of the breadth of anti-Nazi sentiment in the Foreign Office, these three documents give a rather different impression when laid side by side. Not only do they provide no evidence of actual oppositional actions on the part of the people listed, aside from Court's efforts in London in 1939 to get Britain to stand firm in the Danzig crisis, but also the discrepancies among them suggest remarkably amorphous and inconsistent standards of inclusion. Altogether, the Blankenhorn, Court, and von Rintelen lists contain 83 different names, yet 70 of these appear on only one list, 10 on two, and just three on all. Moreover, only one of Kolba's nine anti-Nazis 
appears on even one of the other lists, and only 12 of his 28 provisionally employable people do the like. Clearly, such accounts might ingratiate their authors with allied intelligence agencies, but they were very unlikely to stand up to cross-examination in court if the United States followed through on its declared intention to place former leaders of the foreign ministry on trial for complicity in Nazi crimes. This is where Wilhelm Melchers came in, both literally, because he was galvanized by the prospect of such a trial, and figuratively, because, because he now proffered the kind of evidence that he thought might stand up, namely that of two authoritative voices from the grave. In February 1946, as part of his denazification proceedings, Melchers had written a long memo regarding the conspiracy of January 20th, 1944, that rested entirely on his uncorroborated memory and that furnished two central pillars of post-war apologetics surrounding the Foreign Office. First, he presented Weizsäcker as an inspiration for and a central figure in the anti-Hitler plot. And second, Melchers claimed that two days before the failed coup, he discussed the current personnel of the Foreign Office with the martyred von Trott, who affirmed that it, the office was still healthy, gesund, at its core. By June 1947, as the American trial plans began to gel, Melchers had allied with Erich Kort and other of Weizsäcker's former associates to defend him as the embodiment of the self-sacrificing and principled civil servants who had supposedly labored constantly from within to check the worst Nazi excesses. Melchers now also claimed to have learned of Weizsäcker's continuous efforts to plant anti-Nazis in key positions within the Foreign Office. His source, Helmut Bergmann, the former deputy head of the Personnel and Administrative Section, who interestingly enough was one of the two people who appeared on all four of those lists of putatively anti or non-Nazi diplomats, and who, from Melcher's point of, point of view, conveniently had disappeared into Soviet custody in April 1945 and never been heard from again. The judgment of the American military tribunal in the so-called ministries case, which derided Weizsäcker's conduct as, quote, non-resistant resistance, and convicted him and six of the other seven di diplomats indicted for war crimes, suggests that the arguments of Melchers and others had failed. But their actual impact is apparent in the wide gap between the harsh wording of the court's verdict and the mildness of its sentences. More importantly, the defense strategy struck a chord with German public opinion. By, 19, uh, by 1949, when the judgments came down against the leading diplomats, Germans were increasingly disposed to accept the conveniently self-exculpating view that Nazi bosses and fanatics had been the perpetrators, not the society and, institu and institutions that had served and strengthened Hitler's regime. And focusing on Weizsäcker's agonizing dilemma, stylized as choosing between his beloved country and its repugnant leaders, suited post-war Germans' egocentric fixation not on what they had done to others, but on their own tragedy and suffering. Moreover, after 1949, 
in the environment expressed and fostered by the amnesty law, the end of denazification, and the legislation pursuant to Article 131 of the Basic Law that restored jobs and pension rights to almost all civil servants who had been removed by the Allies, holding the Foreign Office to a higher standard of erstwhile political purity seemed unreasonable to many Germans. It also seemed increasingly unrealistic to the Western Allies, who long since had accepted that a democratic and pro-Western federal republic could not be built without the help of many people with compromised pasts. The end result of these circumstances was that the Foreign Office the Federal Republic founded in March 1951 took on not just the name of the old entity in Berlin's Wilhelmstrasse, but also a great many former occupants of the building. Thanks to the influence of Blankenhorn and Melchers on recruitment decisions, West Germany already had reneged while hiring new consular officials on its public and private promises to the Western Allies that it would not enlist diplomats who had been members of the NSDAP. So far had the practice gone by late 1951 that a multi-party parliamentary investigating committee undertook a review of 22 senior appointees and in June 1952 ruled that their pasts made three of them unsuitable for appointment altogether, three others, including Melchers, unsuitable for assignment to the personnel section, and three more unsuitable for posting abroad. The committee also surveyed 237 of the 397 people who at that point had been recruited to the new higher service and established that almost half of them had belonged to the Nazi party. Among 129 re-employed veterans of the old foreign office, the share was 69%. Conversely, people who had been persecuted by the Nazi regime, i.e. real opponents of it, came to only 9% and 12% of the two groups, respectively. But if discomfort with this pattern was sufficient to provoke the investigation, it was not enough to make most of the recommendations stick or to shock either the German public or the Western allies who still possessed and never once exercised their right to veto appointments to the Foreign Office. Instead, Chancellor Konrad Adenauer a man with a seismographic feel for both German public opinion and his room for maneuver with the Allies, brought the whole matter to a close by calling in the Bundestag for an end to, quote, sniffing around for Nazis, unquote, Nazi Richerei. And the floodgates opened. From 1950 to 1954, the number of members of the higher service who had belonged to the NSDAP rose from 58 to 325, which raised the percentage of Nazis in the new higher service to a higher level than had prevailed in 1937. Interesting, interestingly, given the argument that the Foreign Office needed the experience of these people, more than half of the former party members in the higher service as of 1952 had not served previously as diplomats. The personnel section initially decided to distinguish between Parteigenossen or Nationalsozialisten, party comrades and Nazis, by excluding people who had joined before 1933, excluding recruits to the Allgemeine SS, the General SS, and excluding so-called activists. But the personnel section made exceptions almost immediately. 
most notoriously perhaps in the case of SS Untersturmführer Franz Krapp, who was mentioned before, in the case of Herbert Müller, who was part of the German section, had been sufficiently involved in deportations to have to give up his post as ambassador to Portugal when he was exposed in the late 1960s, and then, of course, in the case of Otto Bräutigam, who had been a senior official in the Ministry for the Occupied Eastern Territories during most of the period 1941-44, and whose diary, later published by the East Germans, recorded his approval of the shootings of Jews. Later, especially after the Federal Republic acquired full sovereignty in 1955, the Foreign Office relaxed even these rather porous standards, and the number of former members of the SS increased noticeably. The consequences for Germany's post-war diplomacy were serious, but not at the level of substantive foreign policy. Perhaps only the long delay until 1965 in the exchange of diplomatic relations with Israel can be traced to continuities of personnel or thinking in the Foreign Office, and even that is uncertain. The problematic results were largely matters of public relations and mostly controllable. To be sure, the allocation of ambassadorships became a delicate task of matching pasts and posts. Senior diplomats with burdened political records stayed in Bonn or went to Arab, Asian, Latin American, or formerly neutral states, and those with unburdened histories went to formerly occupied or enemy countries. Thus it happened that Werner Juncker, a former Nazi party member and participant in deportations from the Balkans, was sent as ambassador to Argentina in the last half of the 1950s. There he made no attempt to find Adolf Eichmann, even after he was indicted by a court in Cologne. His consular division issued passports to two of Eichmann's sons in their own names, and he protected Karl Klingenfuss, a former official of the German section whose extradition from Buenos Aires his own government had requested. But such situations produced no more than momentary embarrassment. Even less outwardly visible was the creation of an inhospitable atmosphere in the Foreign Office for remigranten, re-emigrants, people who had left voluntarily or compulsorily during the Nazi years and who now wanted to return to service. Vanna Paisa found himself kicked from post to post by ambassadors who invented reasons for not accepting a reinstated Jew. Other such individuals learned they had to prove their loyalty by returning to Germany for a year before reinstatement, agreeing that they would not serve in the country that had harbored them, persuading their spouses to accept German citizenship and renounce all others, and demonstrating that the previous resignation had stemmed from pure and unselfish motives. Perhaps the ugliest case of the last-name sort concerned Wolfgang Ganz Edle Herr zu Putlitz, who had defected from his post in Holland to Britain in October 1939. Wilhelm Melchers blocked his reinstatement by citing at second hand the supposed testimony of another of those corpses that Melchers found so handy. In this case, he quoted Putlitz's former superior at The Hague, who had died in Russian captivity. Allegedly, according to that source, 
as transmitted by Melchers, Putlitz had been blackmailed as a homosexual into changing sides, and thus, said Melchers, he was a traitor, not a resistor. Fritz Kolbe found his way to reappointment in the Foreign Office barred, not just by understandable fears that he might again act as an American agent, but also by unsubstantiated rumors that he had helped drive the last wartime German ambassador to Switzerland to suicide. Such readiness to believe the worst of people who had acted on their hatred of the Nazi state extended even to honoring their memory. For almost 50 years after the founding of the Federal German Foreign Office, it refused to recognize the the resistance activities of Rudolf von Schelliha. On the basis of the findings of the Gestapo investigation of 1942, which was ultimately disproved by historical research, that he had worked for and been paid by the Soviet Union. Still a third adverse consequence of the personnel policy of the 1950s was to drag the Foreign Office into elaborate efforts to cover up or otherwise protect employees who had been implicated in war crimes. The office hid this personnel file of Franz Nusslein in a wall safe after he was rehired following his deportation from Czechoslovakia as, quote, a non-amnestied war criminal in 1955. The office also pressured the German publishers of the translation of Gerald Reitlinger's The Final Solution to insert supposedly exonerating information in the author's accounts of the wartime roles of Werner von Bagen and Otto Bräutigam in the killing of Jews. Indeed, the practice of protecting putative war criminals was extended beyond the ranks of the Foreign Office. Until 1969, the office's central legal defense agency, Zentrale Rechtsschutzstelle, considered a legitimate part of its responsibilities to be compiling lists of Germans under investigation or indictment elsewhere and disseminating these lists via the German Red Cross so as to make sure that those affected would not blunder into a country where they could be put on trial. Among the early beneficiaries of the existence of this agency were Klaus Babi and Kurt Lischke, both former SS officers and Gestapo chiefs. As late as 1968, one of the principal offices in the Legal Defense Agency declared its work justified because, quote, the worst crimes against humanity were the so-called war criminal judgments of the Allied States because these, in effect, abolished prisoner of war status, unquote. Despite periodic flaps in the German and international press about incidents such as these and recurrent exposures of the wartime conduct of people who had entered the Foreign Office in the 1950s, by 1970, when Herbert Blankenhorn completed his term as ambassador here in London, or by 1971, when Wilhelm Melchers died, either man could look back with considerable satisfaction on his efforts to mold the image of the German Foreign Office during the Nazi era and its personnel during the initial phase of the Federal Republic. They had established in the public mind, not only in Germany, two not quite compatible perceptions. First, by making sure that people like them in background, training, and behavior dominated the post-war Foreign Office and that people of different and dissonant experiences were kept either down or out. They imparted a 
Geschichtspolitische Botschaft. I'm not sure I can translate that. Uh, a historical message with political overtones. Namely, that the way they claimed to have survived the Third Reich, at their posts and doing their duty, but in dissent, that that way had been the right one, and that all those who had done otherwise were suspect in one way or another. And secondly, through constant repetition and mutual reinforcement, these men and their allies in their age cohort had propagated the legend of the Foreign Office as an island of decency in the Nazi swamp. That the myth of the office's opposition and resistance had become official doctrine is demonstrated by the publication in 1979 by the Foreign Office of its pamphlet called Foreign Policy Today. It attested that, quote, <clears throat> the Foreign Office offered tenacious and time-winning resistance to the plans of the Nazi power holders without being able to prevent the worst. The office long remained non-political and was regarded by the National Socialists as a site of opposition, unquote. Of course, the tenacity of these perceptions <clears throat> owed much to their convenience. They legitimated both at home and abroad the process of hiring people who had joined the NSDAP and served the Nazi state. They were so politically useful, in fact, that they outlasted the other simplistic fictions of the early 1950s concerning the forced complicity of German industrialists, the German churches, and the German army, at least in the public mind. Professional historians, and even some members of the diplomatic service, may have come to think more realistically about the Foreign Office after 1979, thanks to the publications of Christopher Browning and Hans-Jürgen Dersche. But the fact that Germans bought almost 75,000 copies of the Independent Historians Commission's report in the last eight weeks of 2010 alone suggests that the general public had not. The largely positive reception of Das Amt und die Vergangenheit also suggests something else much more important. It suggests <clears throat> that the German public may no longer be so preoccupied as it was with the inner struggles and subjective feelings or motives of their countrymen in the period 1933 to 45 no longer as absorbed as they once were by the desperate search for a reassuring or exculpatory answer to the question, how could this have happened? Instead, the interest in our book suggests that people are now much more willing to concentrate on what those countrymen, diplomats included, actually did or did not do in the Nazi era. Thank you very much. Ambassador Boomgarden, Excellencies, Professor Gestrich, Professor Hayes, and ladies and gentlemen, it's uh, a great pleasure uh, and a very great privilege to be invited to open this discussion of uh, a fascinating book and, and a wonderful lecture, so thank you. Um, I want to keep my comments as brief as possible, as we, we don't have a lot of time, um, and confine them really to two opening questions, um, and the questions, in a sense imply the commentary, I think. 
Um, they both turn on, on the, the, the problem of continuity and precisely what sense we make of the continuities you've described. Um, your, your book and I think your lecture are in effect a gentle polemic about continuity uh, and a polemic which, which gains its force and its, its gentle moral tone from, from its first half. Um, the first half of this book demonstrates, contrary to myth, that under the Third Reich, the Foreign Office became a deeply Nazified institution, uh, not only providing cover for the anti-Jewish policy of the Third Reich, but actively participating in it, and at key points, uh, moreover, driving it. Uh, and that's what, what makes the story about the rehabilitation and reintegration of former Wilhelmstrasse men, uh, including former party members, uh, including former SS men, so apparently shocking. This is what, what underpins, ultimately, the account of the, of the Schleichende Restauration, the, the, the creeping restoration in the early and mid-1950s, once the Foreign Office had been established again. Uh, it's this, this process of, of restoration, in inverted commas, that leads uh, to the situation in the Foreign Office, as elsewhere, uh, of there being a lot of former Nazis in high places, as it were. And that process is buttressed by the myth-making that Professor Hayes described so eloquently. Now, the central question, then, in all of this for me, is, is how do we inflect that phrase, former Nazis? Uh, do we inflect the Nazis? Do we focus on the political identity and therefore on the shocking nature of the continuity? Um, or do we emphasise the former? Um, in which case, the key question is actually one of democratic transformation, the transformation of political subjectivities. Um, what, after all, makes the history of the Federal Republic so, so, so interesting to me, and as Ambassador Boomgarden uh, alluded earlier, um, is the problem of how the foreign turn themselves into the democratic citizens of the Federal Republic. And if ever there was a time to be thinking about this, as you say, it's now. Um, now, your, 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 your book, Professor Hayes, describes a, a liberalisation of political culture of the Federal Republic really from around 1960 onwards. Um, and it describes very clearly how that then fed back into the internal culture of the Foreign Office. Um, and you simultaneously, though, stress the ongoing presence of a particular kind of esprit de corps, um, which made the Foreign Office unusually resistant to acknowledging its own difficult history. And all of that, I think, is, is, is uh, a point well made and well taken. Um, but I think that the question one, one, one has to ask here is what about 1945 itself? Um, and I want to, to, to raise the problem here of, of what we might call the existential impact of the collapse on these people uh, that you're describing. After all, when the Reich collapses, uh, whole worlds collapse with it, um, including the political, the social, the cultural universe of the functional elites, uh, people who up until this point have enjoyed power, authority, prestige, people with political capital, um, social capital, cultural capital, as well as actual capital. All of this is lost, at least momentarily, 
1945. These people suddenly find themselves interned, um, they find themselves going through denazification, a few of them are put on trial. Now, from the perspective of the mid-1950s, looking back, uh, and with the superior gaze of the historian, if you like, it, it may indeed appear that these people had a one-way ticket to reintegration and rehabilitation. Um, uh, th 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 they were always going to find their way back into a booming, westernising society as West Germany became in the 50s. Um, I think if we stop the clock in 1945 or 1946, it doesn't necessarily feel like that to these people. Um, when they are lying interned um, and staring at the ceiling on their wooden bunk beds in their cells, wondering what the future holds, I don't think they picture the late 1950s. Um, I don't think they picture any future at all. Um, and you know, the, 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 these people are, are, are in an environment where periodically uh, people who are uh, interned with them are delivered off to the, um, to the Poles or to the Czechs where they experience summary justice. So that fear, I think, of, of punishment is real for quite some time. Now, generally, of course, they do, um, they do get uh, reintegrated. The question then is, though, are they, by the early 1950s, are they the same people? Um, now, arguably not, I think. Um, and in that sense, the language of restoration is, is a political slogan uh, as much as an analytical um, category. Um, it implies a certain set of continuities which, which may be there on the level of structures um, but aren't there perhaps in the biographies of individuals and I think that's where the interesting problem lies in all of this um, so in other words we, we gloss over those years 1945 to 1951 or so at our peril it seems to me that they deliver a very big dent settle if you like to the functional elites um, so that would be a first question, 1945. Uh, the second is, is, uh, is, is shorter. Um, now, for all that I say, uh, clearly on, on May the 9th, 1945, uh, these people don't all wake up and discover that they've turned into pussycat liberals. Um, so the problem of continuity is there. Um, now, insofar, though, as, as, as there is continuity in the nationalist, racist mentalities... Which, which outlasts the war, um, what sense are we going to make of that? And there I'd just like to pluck one example of the, of the countless numbers of diplomats you describe in your book. It was a name that resonated because I remember reading about him last year. Gustav Adolf Sonnenholz. Um, he was ambassador to South Africa, I think in the 60s and 70s. Um, he'd been a member of the Nazi party, a member of the SA, he'd been a member of the SS, uh, at least one of those before uh, 1933. Um, so this is somebody who, on some level, is, is, is on the enthusiastic end of, of, of the membership rather than the opportunistic one. Um, we next find him as ambassador in apartheid South Africa, which 
sort of jars with our sort of contemporary sensibilities somewhat, I should think. Um, and while he's there, um, he says things of black South Africans, which again uh, would sit uneasily with our contemporary sensibilities on race, to put it no stronger than that. Um, so we have a, a, a sort of former SS man ambassador in South Africa using racist language. Um, on one level, yes, the explanatory framework is ex-Nazis in high places still, unreconstructed Nazis. Um, I think it's worth asking the question, is this simply a residue of the Third Reich? Um, I've never looked at British Foreign Office or Colonial Office papers, but I'm going to take a wild swing and suggest that if we went to British Foreign Office papers in the 50s and 60s, um, we might find some slightly unappealing language about colonial subjects too. Um, now that points to the, the existence, I think, of, of perhaps a more generic colonialist, nationalist, racist set of mentalities within European governmental elites more generally and, of course, beyond them, which both predate and outlast national socialism. So it may well be, uh, and this is, I suppose, the second question then where I'll close, that what we're dealing with is perhaps less the, uh, the, the long afterlife of national socialism than the even longer afterlife of Wilhelminism. Uh, and that's the actual continuity in the political culture, not only of Germany, but perhaps comparable to other um, uh, colonial powers that we might uh, think about on the back of your wonderful book. So, at that point, I'll invite you up to take questions. I think the unifying theme of the two questions may actually not be Wilhelminism or colonialism, but uh, what united the situation that allowed the transition after 1945 on the part of former National Socialists, and what was also true of what Son Ho wrote about uh, apartheid in South Africa, the unifying theme is anti-communism. Uh, the bridge that many of these people were able to travel from being, having worked for Adolf Hitler to working with the United States was that the, the enemy remained Joseph Stalin, the primary enemy, and the, the problem was there. And many of the things that were said, also I'm sure by American diplomats in South Africa in the 1960s when they wrote home, was the effect that uh, the African National Union and Mandela and all of those people were held to be communists. And thus, the defense of apartheid was almost all, was in, always in terms of the struggle with the Soviet Union and the need to preserve stability in an area that had large numbers of natural resources. Um, so that is, I do think, a, a unifying theme, and that's what makes it possible for some of these people to reintegrate. 1945 is fascinating. Are they the same people or are they not? Uh, in some cases, they are, because a unifying theme of their behavior in the Third Reich uh, the, many of these people felt themselves to be bürger, bürgerlich. They felt themselves to be bourgeois in a way that Amer Americans almost don't understand the use of the word. But they were extremely class conscious. And they felt that it, they, what divided them from the Nazi state is they were bürgerlich, and these people were pöbelhaft. That's the, it was a, that kind of a distinction. And after 1945, what they were interested in doing was vindicating the values of the German bourgeoisie. 
And so when they dis- defended the, the functional el- elites and they defended the people in the foreign office, they also wanted to show that der deutsche Bürger hat nicht versagt. That somehow or another there was a way of saving the honor of a whole social level by establishing that the conduct had been the best that it could have been at the time. And that, I think, is a continuity, because in, the, in those moments when they interned in 1945, yeah, they, really, they really think that the outlook is, is bleak. But when things begin to change with denazification, which happens very rapidly, from the moment the Allies turn over denazification to the Germans in December 1946, the chances of further punishment din- diminish exponentially by the month. And so uh, they, the threats to them become less and so forth. Now the continuity about these people is, is summed up in a wonderful story that Hans Schröder t- told. Hans Schröder was the head of the personnel section in the foreign office under Ribbentrop. He was also the first president of the Bundesnachrichtendienst. And when he was, I think he was at a memorial service for a, a colleague who died in the early 60s. And he looked back and he told the story about when he had been the head of the personnel section. People were always coming to him for attestations that they were politically reliable for the Nazis. And after 1945, people were always coming him to him for attestations that he, they were politically reliable to the Allies. And he said, I never turned anyone away. Now there's a continuity of a person, a personality and a political operator that quite obviously continued from one regime to another and given those positions with notable success. So the political values change, but the style and their sense of what is genuinely important. And I really do think a lot of this comes down to minus gleichen. Um, in, in, in the, the argot of my Irish forefathers, the likes of us. That is to say, people were determined to defend the likes of us and to turn away those who were not. And the, the politics got lost in that so that you would sometimes hire someone like Bräutigam back, even though they knew full well what Otto Bräutigam had done. And in fact, this was the rare issue on which Blankenhorn and Melchers divided. Melchers said, take him back, and Blankenhorn said, no. But why didn't Blankenhorn like him? Not because he had approved of the shooting of Jews, because he had left the foreign ministry in 1941 to go to work in the Ostministerium. And that's war Amferrat. That was treason to the office. And so the politics becomes secondary to a lot of these smaller sorts of concerns. And this is one of the reasons why the foreign office is so fascinating as a stage for the human behavior to be able to watch the way human beings... This is why I've, all, I've written two books about corporations. And one of the things I find so fascinating about corporate organizations is this, this very small framework in which you can watch human behavior unfold in all of its best and worst dimensions. Is that adequate as a response? Yes, it's great. Thank you. Right, we have um, about half an hour for questions. And there's a microphone going to be going around. If you could wait till the microphone gets to you before you start speaking. Um. My name is Lionel Koplowitz. I'm a former president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Um, I've been involved in, in, in German activities 
for over 50 years. In 1962, I was invited by the Internationalist and the Foreign Office to visit Germany, and I met Professor Sondheim there, who was then a professor at the Freie University of Berlin, and he made it clear, he talked about the Foreign Office staff, he said that during the time of Baron von Neurath as Foreign Minister, he kept a lid on Nazi activities in the Foreign Office. And once Ribbentrop became Foreign Minister, then, then the, the, the field was wide open and it became totally Nazified. Now the other point I want to make there is this, that I met at that time, with my first visit to Germany then, Herr Schroeder, who was then the German Foreign Minister. Uh -huh. And I asked him the question about staff in the Foreign Office who were Nazis. And his comment was quite clear. He said, well, we attempt to remove as many as we possibly can. But then he looked at me, face to eyeball to eyeball, and said, how do you think you can build up a foreign service from nothing? Yeah. He says, when the state's born, you're going to have staff. And as long as the staff were not active Nazis, and maybe when they were uh, passive, in their support, that we have to go along with it temporarily, but ultimately the situation will clear itself with a matter of five to ten years. That was a view he expressed. Well, I'm not sure whether his time uh, pattern, timetable turned out to be correct, but it did more or less clear itself. Uh, that is, uh, people died off. And uh, people retired, and so those who were compromised, uh, you know, disappeared in that sense. But what you were told on both of those occasions is exactly what the official line was, and what we were trying to say is, uh, so black and white it was not. Uh, that is to say, the Foreign Office did things that served Nazi racism before von Neurath was, was removed as Foreign Minister, and it is also true that some of the people who were taken back in the 1950s, who had national socialist records, had not been experienced diplomats, and yet they were taken back. So the, what we have done is kind of muddied the picture that the official uh, story wanted to present, and we think in a way that is more uh, corresponding to the, 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 the facts of the situation. Thank you. Uh, Daniel Johnson. Um, I want to ask about two individuals and your view of their culpability. The first is Adenauer. Um, Adenauer was the dominant figure in yeah. German foreign policy. Yeah. Although he wasn't foreign minister, he made sure that while he was chancellor, mm -hmm. uh, the foreign ministers were relatively weak. And to what extent he must have known uh, the extent of uh, you know, the phenomenon you yeah. described, uh, the rehiring of Nazis, former Nazis, uh, throughout the 50s. Um, why do you think he, he allowed that? Uh, to what extent was he personally responsible for that? Or was it more the fact that you know, he had a lot of very senior Nazis in his office, you know, people like Blocker and so on? The second person is Richard von Weizsäcker. Um, when I was a, a correspondent in Germany in the 1980s, uh, Weizsäcker was president. And he was then a great hero of German liberal opinion. Um, you know, he made one or two famous speeches, uh, which appeared to be sort of ushering in a new door. But I don't remember Richard von Weizsäcker ever uh, referring to the culpability of his father, whom I seem to remember he actually defended uh -huh. at he did. as he did. a young lawyer. Um, to what extent do you think his role should now be re-examined in the sense that 
what is most extraordinary about your story is not that um, there was this sort of money in the waters immediately after the war, but that it continued right up to the period of Yoshka Fisher. There was no proper re-examination of the, the aunt, uh, even in the 1980s. Right. And, and let me just start with the last point, because the, the Foreign Office promised in the early 1970s, in the time when Scheele was the foreign minister, that there would be a study of this kind. And then there were a series of publications, Christopher Browning's book on the Foreign Office and the, and the Final Solution, Dersha's book, which really is a series of books about reinstatement of people, and so on. And even in the face of this, the Foreign Office did not commission that study. And I find it rather uh, surprising that the, those who are criticizing us out of the ranks of the Foreign Office have said, basically, um, we all knew all this, and yet they did not commission a study that would have shown it. They basically said, you know, we knew from these books that this was the truth, but they did not try to pursue that truth. And, and that I find a very interesting fact. Now, uh, with regard to Adenauer, I'm going to give an answer that seems atypical of the man. Er ließ sich überreden. And, uh, and Konrad Adenauer didn't let himself get persuaded of very much. Uh, but in this case, he, he relied on Blankenhorn, he listened to him, he was determined to set the foreign policy of the Bundesrepublik. He did not think that having these people in the lower sections of the Foreign Office was in any way going to alter the foreign policy that he had already determined. And he remained for his own foreign minister for the first six years, I believe. Um, so he thought, das kann ich mir leisten. I can afford them. And if Blankenhorn says, I have to do it, then I have to do it, and so on. Um, and he accepted it. He also spoke constantly and disparagingly about diplomats. He had absolute contempt. He thought they were, he said, when you see them get together, it's like watching Freemasons. <laughs> they hang together like burrs, is the, uh, Kletten, I think is what he said. And um, so he had this view that on the one hand, he was master of the situation. On the other hand, that's the way they are, and I'll deal with it and I'll live with it. Now, Richard von Weizsäcker, uh, this is a very difficult matter to judge uh, because he was a young man, a law student, when his father was put on trial. Uh, it is, of course, a very respectable act of filial piety to stand up for your father. And if you look at the internal records of the Weizsäcker defense, which we have seen, because his chief, his chief lawyer was a man named Becker, the, the records of that Kanzlei are completely in the public domain now, and we've read them and so on. If you look at the defense, uh, they, they planned a campaign of character assassination against uh, Robert Kempner, who, drew, who was the chief prosecuting attorney, a Jew who had been driven out of the country in 1933, who came back, and they literally went after, to, to, to ruin his reputation, to attack him personally. And Richard von Weizsäcker, from within the defense, said, don't do this. I mean, this was a, a very decent thing. I mean, a moment when he said, even in defense of my father, das geht zu weit. That, that's too much. And there were people who, very, very eminent people, whom we have all respected over the years, Marion Greffen Dönhof, who was part of this campaign of character assassination. And she did not say, das ging zu weit. And so I have great admiration for Richard von Weizsäcker in that particular situation. He's been quite... Um, reserved in his response to the book. He was interviewed right when it came out, and um, he immediately tried to depersonalize the situation 
by saying, you know, this is about history, this is not about me and my family. Um, and, you know, more than that, I, I can't really say. But, uh, but I think this little story about his behavior during the defense uh, is indicative of a sehr redlicher Mann. Thank you very, very much indeed for your wonderful lecture. I suppose there's a huge question lurking behind in the context of your lecture and of your comments. How do we define in the year 2011 who was a Nazi, who was not a Nazi? Sure. And the second question is, what were the greatest obstacles or challenges during your research? Thank you. Oh. Die zweite Frage ist eine große Versuchung. Um, that's, uh, that's a great temptation. Let me start with the first one. Believe it or not, that's the easier one. Uh, how do we define a Nazi? You know, in some ways, uh, I hope this won't seem careless, uh, in some ways we don't have to. Uh, I think we have, for the last 40 or 50 years, tied ourselves in knots trying to do that. And you get, therefore, these things like distinguishing between Parteigenossen und Nationalsozialisten. Um, the people who went through this themselves cannot give very good or accurate accounts of what they were thinking in the Siegesrausch of the summer of 1940. And then again, when the disappointment of the Russian campaign became apparent. And, for, and to maintain that one was a critic of the Nazi regime, in 1944, living in Berlin or being exiled out to an Außensteller because Berlin was being zerbombed, was being absolutely bombed into smithereens, and to be at that moment a critic of the Nazi regime was a sign that you were sane, not that you were politically savvy. The only people who weren't critics of the Nazi regime by then, given what the Nazi regime was doing to Germany, were by definition political fanatics. And so... I think it's very difficult for us to read back and say, at this moment, somebody decided, irgendwas geht hier schief, you know, something's going wrong here. At that moment, we're supposed to declare that they were anti-national socialists. I just don't think that's, that's correct. Uh, what is correct is how did people behave? Um, if, you, if you remember the enormous, I mean, we, we there is a, some people have objected that the Tonfall of the book is a little too harsh. But remember, we read the Persilscheine that were invented by the thousands after the war with, you know, frei erfundenen Geschichten over and over again. And we, we looked at the defense of Weizsäcker and we saw how they tampered with evidence. They, they coached witnesses for weeks to say exactly what they wanted them to say. There's a certain amount of outrage about this because we saw how coordinated the rehabilitation campaign was. Well, also, when you look back on the history of the Third Reich, there's a tremendous amount of outrage that arises when you stop and think of the number of the victims and the day-to-day -day death toll that this regime took. It, it, it killed many more Soviet citizens than Jews. In the end, you can even argue that it killed more Germans than Jews if you want to add up all of the victims of, of the Second World War. This is a truly horrible political entity. And to overvalue the pangs of conscience 
the moments of doubt, the internal struggles that people had under it, and to weigh that as more important to think about than the enormous carnage it was wreaking, then something is wrong with that scales, it seems to me. And, and that is part of what we did. Where I, that last sentence of my remarks is the one I most passionately feel. We must focus on what people did and did not do and not try to penetrate into their heads on a given moment in 1941, 42, 43, uh, but actually, you know, did you do something or did you not? Uh, in the case of, I have written about industry and I have found industrial managers who despite all of the Vorschriften, all of the regulations about how little you could feed somebody and so forth, kept their Zwangsarbeiter alive. And then I have found others that didn't. That, to me, is the big difference. Not what they were writing in their diaries or thinking or saying to their spouses. Juliane, first. Um, I agree with you that the most interesting part of your book um, is this how the Foreign Office deals right after the war with its legacy, um, and especially the creation of this master narrative of resistance which centers around Weizsäcker, but also the courts. Um, and I think uh, the most interesting that you do is this of debunking of this myth, and especially in light of continued um, persecution of those people who did not fit into that myth and who actively um, did things uh, which were maybe more radical, uh, more mm -hmm. in terms of resistance than what Weizsäcker and court did. Um, and therefore, I'm a little bit surprised you say um, it's time to look what people do rather than what they think. But in terms of these people who committed treason, which of course was the only way of how they could use their profession to do um, a step of resistance, um, you still seem to follow that line that actually we have to somehow penetrate their minds. And we, it doesn't actually really matter if Portlitz was um, homosexual, if he was uh, blackmailed by his homosexuality. Does it really matter if Kolbe took money, or does it matter if Jung got money? Um, isn't it not actually the case that what they did is actually the most damaging act um, you could do at that time to the foreign policy of the Third Reich? And I sort of feel also there's another taboo, um, which is um, Portlitz definitely gave the same information he gave to the British Foreign Office, to the Soviets. Um, Shilia, even when Martin, he might not have uh, passed on information to um, the Soviets directly, he definitely acted out of communist convictions. And I felt that in these chapters, um, these aspects were a little bit absent. So are we not actually writing another master narrative of basically the Cold War uh, victors uh, writing the history of the Foreign Office and its Third Reich past? Well, certainly for many years, having been in any way tinged with red disqualified you for consideration. And so, and in the case of Putlitz uh, tinged with pink, and those things made you absolutely unacceptable to be in, on in, in any Ehrentafel and so on. But, you know, I wouldn't say the only thing people could have done was high treason. Um, you know, when Kolbe was an official of the consulate in Cape Town, he filled out false passports that enabled Jews to travel and, and get there and get elsewhere. I mean, he was working in the consular abteilung, and he was actively doing something that undermined the regime. Now, if he'd gotten caught, would that have been considered uh, Volksverrat? Possibly. But nonetheless, he was not openly trying to bring down the government at that moment. He wasn't uh, spying for the Russians. 
He was just doing it. So, and this again is one of these things where uh, I'm, I'm struck the parallels with writing books about industry and, and watching the way businessmen behave. Because when someone chose to exercise imagination, people often found a way to undermine the regime in their normal daily functions. But you had to have this moment of imagination. You had to try and think, what can I do within the parameters around me that I can, that will change things? The example of the, the industrialist I was just thinking of when I used that example is that there's, Degusa had a factory at Gleibitz, which was about 15 miles from Auschwitz. And uh, the labor staff of this factory, the builders, were almost all Jewish males drawn from the Auschwitz camp, and the operators of the factory were almost all Jewish women drawn from a, a ghetto in uh, Schlesien. And uh, a third of the men working on that factory died in the process of doing it. Uh, none of the women. 200 Jewish women were brought to a factory in the east near Auschwitz in April 1943, and 198 of them were still alive in January 1945 when the Russians were coming and they were evacuated. And I interviewed the woman who was the forewoman of the labor battalion. And I said, is it true? The records suggest to me that only two women died? And she said, yes. And they didn't die in the factory. They threw themselves off the roof the day the SS took over the labor camp. So I said, how was it possible in a factory that was making soot, Russ auf Deutsch, carbon black, uh, they had no medicines, they had very poor food, they were living in horse barracks, so they were not warm. How is it possible that the 200 women were kept alive? And she said, we always had just enough. And I knew, I could deduce from this, that the manager of that factory had figured out how to keep those women alive. It couldn't be an accident. And he didn't care about keeping the men alive because the men were construction workers. The minute the factory was done, they were useless to him. But the women operated his plant. Now that's an illustration of people, can, not taken from a diplomatic example, but when people thought, you know, how do I somehow manipulate the situation to get the result that I need? either for moral or practical reasons, there were opportunities. They didn't always succeed, but there were opportunities. And I think that's, again, one of the reasons why what they did is the measure of these things. Did foreign ministries keep tabs on appointments when Germans were sent abroad? Yeah. I might find the most interesting that Blankenhorn was sent to London, and did the Foreign Office in London keep a tag on him? Keep, did they have a dossier? Did they object to the appointment? Was no. he accredited? Yes, of course. But you see, when Exdorf came, there was a student demonstration in Oxford against him. Yes, and there were problems with the first choices in Israel as well. That's right. So did, was that ever fed back to Bond? Yeah, uh, sometimes there was an awareness, but there, there was a remarkable insensitivity to possible responses. I mean, for instance, the first, not mine, the first choice of an ambassador to Israel was someone who, in fact, turned out to be a wonderful ambassador. But he's also someone who had fought on the Eastern Front. And to have not anticipated that the Israelis would shout about this uh, was just obtuse. And, and so there were demonstrations and so forth. And ultimately, the German government decided it could not back down 
It couldn't basically let the recipient land determine who would be the ambassador. They sent him anyway, and he overcame the resistance. But in other cases, uh, they almost sent someone um, with a strong Nazi past to be the first observer at the United Nations in 1950. And when that got out in the American press, the outcry was enormous, and they had to withdraw that. So there was this matter of matching pasts to posts, as I said, but then sometimes they seem to have forgotten or made the wrong choice. Um, and I do remember the story I think I've told about the, a man named Goethe, who was an SS man who was hired into the Foreign Office in the 1950s, and he gave false information to the Foreign Office when he was hired. When the information was exposed, uh, the Foreign Office Im- imposed on him a promotion ban and then, and they kept him in the main office, and then they sent him to Cairo, because I, they thought SS, not a problem in Cairo. And then his next posting was to be Mumbai. And it says very clearly in the note, he won't have difficulties with his past there. So. Thank you very much again for the uh, wonderful lecture. I, I really do sympathize with your approach to take sort of organization institutions as laboratories. But my question follows on from the last one a bit. This is very fruitful, I think, and uh, as an analytical tool uh, for the Nazi period. But for the period after 45, uh, I think you've just shown that one has to open up the field. And to a certain extent, uh, the whole way the realm could actually sort of reorganize itself was only uh, possible because yeah, it was tolerated within Germany, but also obviously within the mm-hmm. in a wider um, yeah, nice. uh, environment. And I just wanted to press you a, a bit how this reflected again on what happened within. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. And and uh, the debates within. I mean, how much was Luxembourg really in, in charge of everything, and, and why did he? The secretary not act earlier. Internal debates over personnel policy tended to happen after something became embarrassing, rather than before. And you can't, you you often can't find, except in the case of Beutigam that I referred to, where Blankenhorn and Melchers basically disagree. You can't find too often an argument about wieder Einstellung oder nicht, taking the person back or not. Now, I think all of this is possible. Uh, one of the most interesting facts I found, oh, you, I, I didn't answer your question about what were the difficulties, but I'll tell you one of the most surprising things in the course of this research. Uh, when I discovered that from that moment in 1950 until 1955, all three of the Western High Commissioners had a veto right over every appointment to the Foreign Office and never exercised it once, that I found an extremely significant and revealing fact because it showed that the Allies might not have liked this. They certainly didn't like it when it appeared in the New York Times. Uh, they were embarrassed, but they didn't see it as a threat. They didn't see it as a policy threat. And I think the only, and in the American documents, the only insecurity you find about German foreign policy after the war has to do with whether old Russian hands will come back in the office and revive the old Schaukelpolitik, you know, something Rapallo-esque between uh, the Soviet Union and the U.S. Once they become pretty sure that that's not going to happen, 
then, and they recognize the nature of Adenauer's Westbindung policy and, and what that means, they are reasonably secure about German diplomatic behavior. Um, and the only, and then, then the issue of the Near East and Israel becomes the only other real point of major tension um, because they, American diplomats want Germany to be more supportive of Israel and Israel for, and German diplomats argue usually for economic reasons. Uh, both economic reasons and Deutschland politische reasons, the Hallstein Doctrine. They we're not going to be more supportive of Israel lest the Arab states recognize the GDR. And those become the impediments. But again, the, Ameri the Allies are re remarkably calm about this. So it seems to me they too come to the conclusion that the future is more important than the past, uh, that they have larger issues at stake than Nazi Riecherei, and they leave it alone. And so within, this context, within the context of the foreign policy constellation of the 50s, uh, the Americans and the British and the French decide more or less what Adenauer decided. I can afford this. Okay, I think we have time for one last question, maybe. Zeit, aber keine Lust. I think the sort of, I'm David Demand. I think this sort of inquiry is very important because <clears throat> very many uh, debates on if the death takes place because it's just seen as a devil from hell. You can't question it, it's just evil. Whereas in fact he was a human being, which makes it worse in a way. And he was said to one of the most important people in the history of the world, because without him he would not be in the Second World War. And he had these terrible aims to enslave Russia. But I have this question. The Gulags went on a lot longer than the Holocaust. My impression, I go to Russia quite long, but my impression is well, that's in the past, let's get on with our lives. Could I not suggest you, not in academic or perhaps political circles, but in general, is that not a more healthy approach than this terrible raking over of every detail no. of the Holocaust? No. Um, I'm wearing the only tie I own that is Schwarz-Rot-Gold. <laughs> and so at this point, I will now live up to my tie. Um, I, I think. Translate the name of the tie. It's the only one I have that is black, red, and yellow, like the German flag. And uh, the German confrontation with Germany's confrontation with its past reminds me always of what Winston Churchill said about democracy. It's the worst thing ever done, except every other attempt to devise a governmental system. And the German Aufarbeitung der Vergangenheit is, I think, not only a, an entirely admirable thing. I think it is infinitely superior to letting it, raking it over and, and so on. And the reason why is real, and I think this is something Ambassador Baumgarten said at the beginning in slightly different words, real democracy depends on humility. It is impossible without humility. The, the uh, Vergöttlichung, uh, the idolization of the state and of the folk was the ultimate sin that led to everything else in National Socialism. Uh, modesty about what one's nation is, what it can do, what its faults are, and so forth, are, is absolutely essential to a peaceful democratic system. I wish my own country had more of it. <laughs> and so, I think one of the things that is really quite remarkable about, in the first place, this commission has an American and an Israeli. I do not know two other nations on the face of the earth, if that, which would have invited the views of a foreigner on the process of examining its own past. This is a remarkably good and positive thing. And then my punchline to you about the Russian situation is this. I was in St. Petersburg this summer, and I was on a tour 
where the tour guide on the bus, when asked something about the Russian Revolution, basically said, the Jews hated the Tsar, and so they overthrew him to take over Mother Russia. This is the tour guide on the bus. This, is, this shows you the level of historical consciousness in that society. And the failure to engage in this kind of in- intensive scrutiny of the past, critical scrutiny of the past, is what differentiates these two situations so profoundly. So I, I do think there are different... I don't necessarily think that the Nuremberg process of putting people in jail was necessarily the right thing. Uh, the South Africans have done very well with Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. Uh, the Czechs have done some very good things with looking back on what happened in the, with the deportation of the Germans after 1945. It isn't always a matter of legal penalties, but the process of confronting the past and looking at wovon wir fähig waren, of what we were capable I think that's absolutely indispensable to a free society.